You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hello, I'm Janet Smith. I teach philosophy at the University of Dallas, and today we're continuing an eight-part series, this is the second part, on sexual ethics. Last time we talked about natural law, and this time we're going to continue the instruction on natural law and perhaps get into the meaning of human sexuality, though remains to be seen what we actually cover as we go along. But the natural law summary that I'd like to focus on to begin with is the simple phrase, act rationally which I've paraphrased here to say that is act in accord with what you have determined after reflective thought to be best. Now, obviously, many times we can't think before we act. We have to act very spontaneously, immediately, habitually. But then we would say act in accord with what you could justify by reflective thought when you have an opportunity to reflect upon what you did. Now, the word rational, or even to act rationally in our day, often has a very negative connotation. People don't respond well all the time to the claim, act rationally. And I really think our negative response to the phrase, act rationally, is based upon a false view of reason, or certainly not a view that was held by Thomas Aquinas, who gave us this dictum to act rationally, or Aristotle would have said to act rationally. Often when we hear someone say, he's a very rational person, it's not always a huge compliment. Sometimes we think that person's missing out on some portions of reality, that they're not fully in attune with their emotions and their passions, but they're always very deliberate and slow and take into account all these hard facts about reality, but maybe again missing certain intuitive, creative, spontaneous elements of, of reality, elements again largely that we may have access to through our emotions and our passions. Now, that certainly isn't the view of rationality that either Aristotle or Aquinas had when they give us this dictum to, to act rationally. This false view of reason perhaps can be traced back as far as maybe to Descartes or Kant. And they really wanted to think about the human mind as something that was completely divorced from the human body, and that the human person was simply a mind, that that's what we were, that we were, when we say we're rational creatures, our bodies are just simply, in a certain sense, like a car. It's just a, a vehicle that holds the mind, but the mind is really what the human being is. And that really the, the body and the emotions are, are simply our animal nature or something that's in a certain sense misleading. That what you want to do is get as free from your emotions and free from your body and your passions as you can. And then you can think like a mathematician or a scientist. You can have this pure reason that's, that's unencumbered by, by any passion or emotion, again, or any bodily influence. Again, that's, that's very disparate from an Aristotelian Thomistic view of the human person and of reason. The Aristotelian Thomistic view of the human person is that we are embodied spirits, that we are a union of body and soul, and our body is a part of our essence. We are not just minds in a body, but our bodies are actually part of who we are. It's not just a, something, a vehicle that God put a mind in, just like we put, again, a person in a car or a boat or, or a bicycle. It doesn't matter what kind of body you have. As long as you have a human mind, you would be a human being. No, you have to have a human body, and the human body is essential, that everything that we come to know, everything that we know comes to us through our senses and through our body, that there's no other way to know anything, that you get data through your body, through your senses that comes into your mind, and then your mind thinks about it, but you, the body is key and essential to our whole response to reality. We wouldn't know that there was rough, smooth, uh, heavy things, colored things, unless we had senses. And it's our senses that give us the data by which we can then think. And our emotions are extremely important as, an, again, another access to reality, another way of filtering through what's out there to bring it into our minds so that we, we can think about it. Think an appetite. Your body tells you that you're hungry, that you need to eat. Again, you think about that. Should I eat now and what should I eat? But you start with a bodily impulse that tells you something. Emotions are very similar. You may become angry at something. That may be very right. That may be just the right response. Just in the same way you taste something, it's bitter. You say, mm, I don't want to eat that. It's bitter. It's a warning sign. It may be good for you. You may have to figure out that it's medicine and you should take it anyway. But that bitterness is a good sign that, well, wait a second. Let's think about this. Let's get some data about what I'm eating. Should I take it? A response such as anger is the same kind of thing. 
you might see a large person beating up on a child and you get angry. Now that's a good response. That's a response to reality. It tells you that you ought to do something. It motivates you to do something. You take joy or delight in something. Again, that motivates you. It's a, it, you filter it into your mind and your system and you say, should I do this? And this can be very instantaneous. Of course, the human mind is, is more rapid than we can even think of any computer being, of jumping from a data to some sort of conclusion on how we ought to act. It doesn't mean you have to sit in the room and ponder and think. It can be very instantaneous that you calculate a whole bunch of different principles and values that tells you that if this large person is beating this child, you had better run for help, you had better attack that person. Immediately your mind jumps into gear and thinks about what to do. The view of reason that we're talking about here, the view of reason that is behind natural law, is what I would call a full-blown view of reason, not one that you just have a mind that's like a computer, that's just like a little calculator that adds things up in a very rational fashion, devoid of any passion or, or the bodies. But instead, you have a reason that is completely informed by the body and by the emotions, and that's very much the data that it works with. The word ratio itself, which is behind the word rational, means ordered you know the word from math, that you have a ratio, and that one thing lines up with another thing. Ratio, our ability to reason, means that our minds are measured to reality, and it's through our minds that we can understand what reality is. Now again, this false view of reason tended to think that the only thing there was was the mind. In fact, couldn't again really say whether there was an external world and really didn't care, was only interested in what was in the mind. Whereas the Aristotelian Thomistic view of reason says, no, there's a reality out there. There are things out there that we need to live in accord with. And if we don't live in accord with them, it's going to be disastrous. You need to know things like you can't build bridges out of tissue paper, okay? You try to do it, it'll fall down. You can't run your car on molasses. You need oil and you need gasoline. There are certain natures to things. And when you learn what the natures of things are, you can learn how to live with them, how to have them do what they're meant to do, and then you can achieve what you hope to achieve. So there's a reality out there. The sense data, your emotions, all help you get in touch with. But your reason is what helps you order that data. It helps you put it in the right order so that you know what right kinds of conclusions to draw from it. Certain, of course, generalizations. When is it right to say bitter things, for the most part, you might say are not healthy? but sometimes they are. So your mind has to make those divisions between what your senses tell you when something bitter is not good for you, it's poisonous, and when something bitter is good for you, it's medicine. And so your reason is what helps you get into accord with reality. So when we say that someone should act rationally, we're saying basically you should act in accord with nature, you should act in accord with reason, you should act in accord with reality. <laughs> so I mentioned last time, when we say someone's irrational, we often mean not that they're being emotional per se, but that they're being too emotional, that their emotion is improper for this situation. Usually we talk about it in terms of excess of anger. You might have said the wrong word and someone just blows up and you say, well, if I could use another word, would it make things better? <laughs> I didn't mean to use that word. Or you might, again, grief. You should have a different response if your cat dies or if your daughter dies, all right? They shouldn't be the same response. You should feel grief at your cat dying. You become close to this cat, you have a bond there, the cat dies, you mourn. That you should mourn for as long as you would mourn if your daughter died, that would be irrational, all right? So when we say irrational, I mean it's not ordered to reality. There's a certain emotion that's proper here. If you feel and express that emotion properly, that's a rational response to the situation. Rational does not mean devoid of any passion or devoid of emotion. It means the proper response to the situation, the proper emotion to the proper extent. That when we say act rationally, we're not saying act in devoid of all passion, act devoid of all emotion. But we're saying basically act in accord with reality. Since human beings, again, are the only creatures that can think and can act in accord with reason, as we mentioned last time, plants and animals, they simply act through instinct. They don't sit back and ask, you know, how much sunshine do I need today? Or how many worms should I eat? Or should I eat that worm or shouldn't I eat that worm? They just simply act on their instinct. Human beings can reason. And the first kind of reason that informs all of our action is a kind of a judgment. We say that you should do good and avoid evil. And if we judge something to be good, we say, well, then that's worthy of doing. And if we judge something to be evil or bad, we say we shouldn't do that. For instance, you say vegetables are good. Well, we don't mean taste good, we mean they're good for you. And if they are good, you should eat them. And you could say that eating a truckload of Twinkies is bad. And then you say, well, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> 
And these words, good and bad, are words that pull you towards something or make you have an aversion from it, both on a very physical level and then, of course, on a moral level. So the first primary precept of moral law is considered to be do good and avoid evil. And then the search, of course, is to find out what is good and what is evil. Simple example I'll give, marriage is good. It's good to get married. Adultery is bad. Avoid adultery. Right? Now, what kind of judgment, what kind of reasoning do we go through to discover that such a thing as marriage is good, again, and adultery is bad? Once we label them as good or bad, we know what we should do. We should pursue what is good, and we should avoid what is evil. But again, a question is, how do we know what is good and what is evil? Now, I talked some about this last time. I'm going to talk about it in greater detail this time. What I'm going to work on are secondary precepts of the natural law, which are ordered to the order of natural inclinations. Again, I talked about tomato plants last time. I said you should provide tomato plants with water, sunshine, fertilizer. Well, and you should provide human beings with food. We have natural inclinations. We have a natural inclination to continued existence. We want to eat. We want to sleep. These things are necessary for us. We want to enjoy sexual intercourse. It's a good thing. It's very pleasurable. It brings with it all sorts of goods. We'll talk about what those goods are, but first and foremost, pleasure, intimacy, children. Those are good things. We have a natural inclination, actually, to educate our offspring, to take care of them, to raise them up. We have a natural inclination to seek and advance knowledge. Human beings are very curious. They want to know and they want to increase their knowledge. Human beings have a natural inclination to live in community. We find it sick if a, a person wants to go live by himself in a closet or something. It's not good. We don't all need as many friends as everybody needs, but we all need some sort of community. So these are our natural inclinations. Now you can see that some of these we share with the animals and some even with the plants. But it's a wonderful thing to think about how very different human beings are from plants and animals, how very different we are. We do everything in a human fashion. You think, well, we eat. Human beings eat, but we don't eat, and animals eat. But we don't eat in the least bit like dogs do or cats do. We have tremendous ceremony surrounding how we eat. And in a certain sense, we feel more human, more dignified, the more ceremonial our eating is. The best dishes, the most formality, the most beautiful restaurant, people dressed up in the finest clothes, and we eat, right? We nourish our bodies, but we do so in a very human fashion. We don't get down, if we've seen a human being eating like an animal, it disgusts us to think of a human being putting his face in a plate. We could nourish ourselves just as well by putting our face in a plate as we could by having a beautiful set of china and silverware and someone serving us graciously. But that's not a human way of doing things. Humans order things, and they order things to what is beautiful and to what is good. We don't even meet our most elemental animal needs, even going to the bathroom. We want beautiful bathrooms. We want clean bathrooms. And we love it when they have gold fixtures in the bathroom, for crying out loud, because this is human. It's human to want things to be beautiful, to want them to be dignified, to be in accord with our higher nature and not in accord with our lower nature. Even what you could call our lower nature, we're always elevating and lifting up and bringing it up to a human level. And we do that largely, again, by order, and by beauty. And this is what we're really seeking in life, is to have an ordered life and a beautiful life. When we're surrounded by that, we love it. You know, when you walk into a beautiful place, you feel great. <laughs> this is gorgeous. I could stay here forever. You stand on top of a mountain, you see a beautiful scene, you say, this is beautiful. I could stay here forever. Animals, so far as we know, do nothing like this. You stand up on a mountain with your dog, chances are you're having a totally different response to what the atmosphere is. Even though you're both animals, you're both seeing the same thing, you're getting the same data. The human being's mind is doing something completely different, maybe writing a poem, maybe even thinking of some beautiful music, at the beautiful paintings, at the same time as you're watching this scenery. The important thing is to see that we have these natural inclinations, but every one of these natural inclinations is filtered through our reason in the way that we respond to them. We have certain urges. We have urges to eat. Again, it's a good example. You might have an urge to eat, but you filter it through your reason. You say, now, in this way, in this amount, how should I eat? And that's a question a human being is always asking. How should I act upon this impulse? Again, whether or not you're conscious of that, you're doing it. You're doing it spontaneously and automatically. Again, it's almost like a computer. You're programmed to be asking this question all the time. That's part of human nature. What we do then, what, again, as I mentioned last time, what you take are these, these natural inclinations, and from them, 
you can then start formulating rules on how you ought to live. You can say, as you do with your children, sit up straight when you eat. Don't put your elbows on the table. Eat with your fork. Eat with your spoon. These are human ways to eat. This almost reaches a moral level. There are certain ways in which we find disgusting and repugnant, again, for a human being to eat. But even just take the need to eat. We should eat. And if you stop eating, there's something immoral about that. If you only eat Twinkies, there's something immoral about that. You are not taking care of a good that has been entrusted to you. Your body, your health is a good. You have a moral obligation to seek the good of your body. So you can start formulating rules about moral rules, even about human life, once you know what natural inclinations are. Every human being has the need to eat. Every human being on the face of the earth has the need to take care of their health. So you could make a moral rule. Eat. <laughs> eat healthy foods. All right. Take care of your body. You can make moral rules. So this is how it works. Let's take the natural inclination of you have a desire to live. Every human being has a desire to live. And so you can make a general precept. Act in such a way as to respect life. And from this, you can then get more specific, more particular. Do not deliberately take an innocent human life and do not commit suicide. All right? That these would be violations of natural inclinations and natural goods. It's much like don't put your tomato plant in a closet if you want it to thrive. Don't take innocent human life. You're taking a good from another person. Don't commit suicide. Right? You're taking a good from yourself, which is life. We have a natural desire to live. We know that. We think about it. And we can then formulate rules about it. Again, eat nutritious food would be an, a moral rule that you could formulate. Rescue the drowning. All right? That's sort of under number one, but it gets more specific. There's an actual scenario you have in mind. Someone's drowning. Why do we have this impulse? Any one of us, if we were to walk by a swimming pool and we saw someone floundering in the pool like they were about to drown, we would have a natural impulse to help. It would be very bizarre for us if someone walked away, very bizarre. We'd think there's something wrong with that person. They're extremely selfish. They're so selfish that they're violating their natural inclinations, which would be to, to toss something at least to that person or call someone up and, and help. We have a natural inclination toward because that's how much we naturally respect life. Now, the next picture we want to get in this natural law scenario is this notion of virtue. I've been talking a lot about law and rules. And actually, this is important, natural law is not about laws and it's not about rules. It's actually about virtue. It's actually about human excellence. Again, making rules about tomato plants is not for the sake of the rules. You don't want to say, give it water, give it sunshine, because you love these rules. It's because you want a good tomato plant. You want a tomato plant that will do what a tomato plant does. So the rules are all in service of the excellence of the tomato plant. So all the rules that we make morally are in service of something's better, which is virtue, which is something that is internal. The word virtue itself means actually manliness, okay, for the Latin word. But for the Greek word, the word arete, it does actually mean excellent, that something is excellent. A virtuous human being has the qualities that make for a good or excellent human being. Behind that picture, virtue, well, let me talk about that before I can get behind it for a minute. We could probably draw up a list of qualities, and we always do when we write job applications, job recommendations, qualities that people should have. We want them to be reliable. We want them to be diligent. We want them to be kind. We want them to be generous. And we say people who have those qualities are excellent. They're good. He's a good human being. We say, if someone were to say he's a good human being, and then you found out that he cheats on his wife, you would say, wait a second, I thought you said he was a good human being. I, I don't believe that. You say he robs banks. You say, I thought you said he was a good human being. We know what good human beings are. Again, they're reliable, generous, kind. There's a whole set of qualities that you would say a person should have if we're going to call that person a good human being. The way that the whole notion of what makes for a good human being, a way of getting at the reality that is, is to, again, is to look at what a human being is. Again, if you were to look, want to know what a good car is, or a good TV, or a good tomato plant, you look at what it is, and then it functions well at what it is. Now, the most important part of the human being is his soul. Right? The word psychology actually means study of the soul. We have a psyche. Right? We have a soul. We have a part of us that's not material. That's what the soul is. It's the part of us that's not material, spiritual. You say, how do we know that? You say, because there's a huge difference between a living human being 
and a dead human being, right? And it seems that something has gone. The body is exactly the same. The body is identical to what it was a minute before. You have the same body, the same matter, but something's gone, something that's not material. You can't capture, you can't put it in a box, you can't put it in a room, but it's gone, it's not there anymore. That's the soul. That's the spiritual part of the human being. You say, well, what does the soul do? Well, obviously, the soul is responsible for everything that the human being can do when it's living that it can't do when it's dead. It's important to think about. You say, well, there's a dead human being. That means it no longer has a soul. Well, what could it do before it was dead? It could laugh, it could sing, it could run, it could breathe, it could eat. It can't do any of those things now. Then it must be something was there before that's no longer there that helped it do those things. So it's the soul that helps the human body do all those things. And once the soul goes, once that spiritual element leaves, the body can't grow anymore. It can't grow its nails, it can't grow its hair, can't sing, it can't dance, can't do anything because now it's just a lump of matter. So the soul is that part of the human being that is responsible for all of these different activities, largely activities of life and growth. It's considered to be the root definition of the soul is the principle of life, the principle of life and then everything that comes with life. And what can you do with your human being? You can think, right? You can will, you can choose if you're living. You can emote. Concupiscible means you have pleasurable desires. You, you want to eat, you want to have sex. Irascible means that you're, you've got a sort of force to overcome anything that's difficult, right? Anger is one of those things. Anger makes you get at something that's difficult. It's a motivation to do what's difficult. Then you have all these basic appetites, hunger, thirst, sexual desire, need for sleep. When you're dead, you don't have any of those. Those are all a part of the soul. Now what the Western tradition has seen is that the soul should be ordered. It has different parts and that the higher parts should rule the lower parts. Again, that doesn't mean it should eradicate the lower parts, that it should make them non-functioning. Again, that it should rule them, that the intellect is your ability to think. And you think, again, not only like a calculator, but you think through intuition, through creative thought, spontaneous thought, rational thought, logical thought. There's all sorts of thought that we have. But anytime you're thinking, all right, it doesn't matter how you're thinking, as long as you're thinking, that's the act of your intellect. And it's your intellect that tells you what you ought to do. You ought to do this and you ought to do that. And then your will chooses to do, hopefully, either what your intellect is telling you to do or what your desire wants you to do. For instance, I'll use this all the time, chocolate. <laughs> I love chocolate. I try to moderate my eating of chocolate. But sometimes my desires, my appetites, rule. My intellect says, you know, you've had enough chocolate for today. But somehow I manage to convince myself that, no, I should have this piece too. Or I just have it. I know it's wrong and I eat it anyway because I have this little struggle going on in my soul. I have a soul that has appetites that don't readily line up with my intellect. Now, so far as we understand, again, this is from Christian revelation. This is a distinctively Christian premise. This is not philosophical, that we once had a nature that wasn't ordered, not me personally, but humankind, with Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve weren't troubled by passions that they couldn't control. They didn't want to eat more than they should eat. They didn't want to have sex when they shouldn't want to have sex. They didn't want to sleep more than they should sleep. But I'll bet you recognize yourself in this picture. Which one of us don't want to eat more than we should eat, drink things we shouldn't drink, have sex that we shouldn't have, sleep longer than we should sleep, sleep when we shouldn't be sleeping? But all of us, disordered passions. And it's our intellect that tells us, get out of bed. You gotta go get that job. Don't fall asleep here in class. Pay attention, all right? It's your intellect that says, no, there's a good here that we have to discipline the passions to help us to pursue. Now, virtues are what help us govern our passions, help the intellect govern the passions. Virtues are really habits. They're habits that allow us to, again, govern our passions. Temperance is the virtue. We call it self-moderation, self-control, self-mastery, which are synonyms for temperance. You get the wonderful word, self-control, self-mastery. It's if there's, again, there's something inside of me two different things at least pulling me. Don't eat chocolate, eat chocolate, right? If I had the virtue of temperance, my intellect would win. My intellect would say, don't do that, it's not good. I say, it's not good, I'll feel bad if I eat it, I'll be sorry tomorrow that I eat it, so I shouldn't eat it. That's a rational choice, that's a good choice. Courage, it helps you overcome your fears, right? There's things that we ought to do that we're afraid to do. Go talk to your boss, 
Go talk to your friend about this problem that you've got. You've got a problem with this. And so you've got to have some sort of courage to, to overcome any fear that you have. Justice is actually a virtue of the will. It justice governs our relationship with other people. Again, we generally want more than we should have. We want more money. We want more things. We want more, more, more. And we're generally willing to take from other people. But we are social creatures. And it's a part of our fulfillment of our nature to live in accord with demands of social life. And part of the demands of social life is to give people what is their due. And so we need to govern our will. We need to govern our desire for goods and our desire to interact with other people in accord with the dictates of justice. So if you have these habits, then some of the things in life that could be hard become fairly easy. If you have the habit of uh, not eating between meals, right, you have a virtue. You don't need to struggle all day long. If you have the habit of not buying pornography, right, you have the habit of not going to X-rated films. There are certain things you're not going to struggle with because you've got the good virtue and you've got the habit. Prudence is a different kind of virtue. Temperance, courage, and justice are all moral virtues. Prudence is considered to be an intellectual virtue that has a moral aspect to it. Prudence really does mean figuring out the right thing to do. You have a lot of experience, and now you know what to do in a situation. And it doesn't mean that you have a rule. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily, sometimes it means you're applying a rule correctly. But it simply means that you are so ordered now to the good that you can see the right thing to do in a situation and you will do it. Fairly good examples of this, constant example, is say that a man is away for maybe three weeks from his spouse. And he's going by the bar at the hotel. And he sees a lovely woman sitting there who he knows. And he could go sit and talk with that woman. And he has a little voice in his head that says, should you do that? And maybe the answer is yes, no problem. I won't be tempted. I know this woman well. She's a good woman. I'm a good man. We can sit and have a drink and there's no problem. Another man might have a little warning light that goes off and says, no way, keep walking. Just go up to your room, watch the baseball game. Don't stop here, right? Now these two men have two entirely different responses and they both could be the very prudent response. Both of them know themselves well. They know the situation well. They're not, they might have a rule that's in the back of their mind, don't commit adultery. Both of them have that same rule, but that's not what's operating here. What's operating here is that they can tell what kind of situation this is. Is this a situation which threatens their virtue which would threaten their relationship with their spouse and the wives, or is it something that would be unproblematic and not harmful? They know themselves, they know the situation, they know the right way to behave, and they know what to do. And they've got the virtues that will help them quite instantaneously and spontaneously do the right thing. One man might say, there's no problem. We can go talk about the meeting today. I'll learn something, she'll learn something. It will be good for us. The other man says, no way. I know where my desires are. I know, that I know her. I think she's not very strong either. It would be bad for me to go sit and have this beer. So this is what law is all directed towards actually helping us acquire these virtues. And that at the end of our lives, we hope that we are temperate, courageous, just, and prudent human beings. And we've gotten this way by winning these battles with our soul, winning these battles in our soul between our emotions and our reason that tells us various things that we ought to do. So. The final thing on the picture is grace. Grace is a theological entity. Grace is something that's free. The word grace comes from the word free. And it's something that God gives us. It's not something that we can get. I mean, we can dispose ourselves towards us. This is something outside of the natural realm, but it's important to know about because it's a special access we have to something that will help us be good in a difficult situation. We get it through the sacraments, we get it through prayer, but again, it's a supernatural entity and not a natural entity. It's a bit out of the realm of natural law because natural law is in accord with what we can do on our own, though we can do nothing on our own, but that grace is something special that God gives us to help us in our lives, in our moral lives and in our spiritual lives. Okay, we've finished off some of the principles or basics of natural law, and now we're going to move to sexual intercourse itself, human sexuality, and what are the natural law principles by which that should be governed. In order to do so, we really need to, to get some understanding of what the meaning of human sexuality is. I've talked about we need to know what the purpose of something is, what its telos is, in order to understand how to do it properly, how to use it properly.
and in how to do things in, again in a distinctively human way. And I have here again a list of texts that might be useful uh, for you at some point to consult if you want to read more fully and deeply on some of the questions we're going to cover here. One of the most important books, now this is hard going, is Carol Wojtyla's book Love and Responsibility. Carol Wojtyla, of course, is now our present John Paul II. And I personally think, and I'm not alone in this, thinking that this is, will soon be added to the list of the great books of the Western world. He wrote this back in 1959 or 1960 when he was Archbishop of Krakow. And he had, for years, run an institute for family life in Krakow and had learned very deeply about human sexuality, about male-female relationships, about marriage and the family. And he had a, already a very sophisticated and deep uh, instruction in philosophy. He had a PhD in philosophy. And he put these things together, this insight into what human love is, the dignity of the human person, and wrote this book, Love and Responsibility. I think it's a key text for those who want to understand the Catholic Church's teaching on sexuality that has been greatly formed by Carol Wojtyla in these decades. Obviously, not only is he pope now and writing a great deal, but he had an enormous influence on the writing of the documents of Vatican II, especially the document Gaudium et Spes, which is translated the role of the church in the modern world, and also an enormous influence on the writing of Humanae Vitae. So the Holy Spirit's been forming John Paul II for a long time to instruct us on sexuality. But again, this is largely, it is largely a philosophic text and not a theological text. Now there's several things he's done since he's been a pope, and I've only picked out two of them here that are useful to us. One is his original unity of man and woman, and blessed are the pure in heart, which are collections of Wednesday afternoon talks, noon times talks that he gave that talk very much about what he calls a theology of the body. These are very theological works. These are a view of human sexuality. Unlike love and responsibility, again, which is largely philosophic, these works are theological. They look at really human sexuality through the filter of scripture. And we'll do some of that, though largely, again, we're going to have the philosophic approach here. There's also a text that's available from Our Sunday Visitor by Father Ronald Lawler, Joseph Boyle, and William May, entitled Catholic Sexual Ethics. It's a wonderful introduction to Catholic sexual ethics. It's very comprehensive, thorough, very readable. And for those of you who want to go more deeply into these matters, I'd certainly recommend that book. Book by Ignatius Press by Father Cormac Burke called Covenanted Happiness, Love and Commitment in Marriage, which I think is just a wonderful book on the values of marriage. And we'll talk uh, some of those. But again, it's, it's readable, it's accessible. He's a brilliant philosopher and thinker. Reverend Benedict Ashley, who will be doing a series in this series, the International Catholic University of the Airways, he's written a book, a very thick book, called Theologies of the Body. It's technical, it's sophisticated, and for those of you who are ready to cut your teeth on some harder material, I'd highly recommend that. And then again, an excellent source for those who simply want to get started on these matters is the Universal Catechism. So what we're talking about now is the telos, or meaning, of human sexuality. We ask about anything. We're going to ask, what's it for? How should it be treated? What should we do with this? You basically ask, well, take a look at it, observe it. Again, have your sense data, have your emotions, have your reason, bring to bear, put it on this phenomena and see what is it? What are we talking about? Again, much like eating. You look at why do we have this tongue in this mouth and what do we do with it? What's it for? It's for nourishment. It's for eating. What's it for eating? It's for eating healthy food. Why? So our bodies might be healthy, so that we might flourish. How do you know what bad food is? It's food that makes you sick. If you have an allergy to something, you shouldn't eat it. It makes you sick. It's bad for you. So you say we have an idea of what human flourishing is, and then we see that we have different organs, different faculties, different activities. And you say, how do these activities contribute to the good? In what way would these activities have pursued contribute to the bad. Stay away from the bad, pursue the good. You say, all right, human sexuality, what does it do? You look at human beings have sex, we all know that. Why? Well, number one, pleasure. It's pleasurable. Pleasure is a good thing, right? It motivates us. But you want to say, but there's lots of good things. Again, eating is good and you don't do it indiscriminately. You have to measure it, you have to order it, you have to do it in accord with what is good. Sex is good, but it's pleasurable but it doesn't mean that you can just pursue it because it's pleasurable. There are certain realities about sex that you have to respect and honor in pursuit of the pleasure that comes with sex. 
So what are those? Well, we notice that when human beings have sex, it's very different, of course, from when animals have sex. It's a strange accusation sometimes that people make against natural law theory that it reduces human sex to animal sex, that it looks upon it as just a biological or a physiological thing. But I think you'll find that that's extremely erroneous when you start reading the church's teaching or natural law writers who write about human sexuality. You can notice with animals, again, much like they're eating, their sex is totally different, right? It's a happenstance thing, quick, right? Very pleasurable, we assume, but there's no commitment there. There's no love. There's very little courtship. Oh, again, you know, some peacocks and birds. There's some courtship that goes on. But you don't pick out the best person. You don't pick out the one who is good or any not person, animal, partner, I should say. It seems to be quite happenstance. It seems to be immediate. There's no tenderness, no care, no pursuing the happiness of the other. None of that goes on. Now, human sex can be very animal-like, just as human beings can eat like animals, but we don't much respect it, and we think that there's something diminished in that and low in that. And again, much, much like everything else, we think that the more enhanced the courtship, the more beautiful, better it is, that the more tenderness, the more thoughtfulness, the more gentleness that's involved in courtship and human sexuality, the better it is that we enhance a physical act with all sorts of human dimensions to it. Something we want to ask here is, well, why are these human dimensions? Again, why would a human being care? Again, as I mentioned before, a human being wants dinner on beautiful silverware, wants to be served in a certain fashion, wants their bathrooms to be beautiful. They want their sexuality and their courtship to have certain rituals, certain ceremonies to be beautiful in a certain fashion. And if it's not that way, we find it to be less than human. If a person just comes up to another person and says, want to have sex, we go, oh, there's something, there's something wrong about that. A dog approaches a dog, right? There's not something human about that. There's not getting to know you, getting to know your name, who you are, what your dreams and joys and fears are in life. If it's just raw physical action, we say, no, there's something wrong with this. This is animal, this is not human. Human, you want to know the whole person. Dogs do know the whole thing. That's dog, 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 right? You don't need to know the history. A human being is much more than just their body. A human being, again, is body and soul. It's a, there's a whole history. There's an emotional being. There's a spiritual being there that one should get to know in order for this act to be a human act. Now, we'll get into that soon, I think, in some deeper, thoughtful way. But just on the immediate surface, human sex, we could say, is nearly totally different from animal sex, all right? Animal sex is simply physical. It's a physical pleasure. We have no sense, again, that they have anything, any commitment, anything that goes deeper than that. Human sex, when we admire it and we think it's right, goes much deeper. It really is two persons who get to know each other, who get to know each other's needs and desires, again, their histories, their futures, and want to be a part of that. We don't want it to be just momentary. We talk about one night stands as if there's something really, there's some urgent physical need that's been met but we don't feel that it's been done in a human fashion. It's the same thing with babies or offspring. Again, uh, papa dog begets baby dog, and papa dog is gone, right? And it plays no part in the upbringing of, of the baby dog. It has no concern about how the baby dog is raised. But with human beings, babies take full-time, almost full-time attention of both parents in order to really to prosper and to thrive. So you say, well, sex isn't just for having babies. It's for creating a family unit. It's creating a family unit with two parents who are really going to care about this child. You might want to say, well, why, again, is human sex and human baby making so very different from animal sex, intimacy, bonding, and babies? Again, we'll look at this some when we get into reproductive technologies, but it's the same thing. We, we generally, up until very recently, thought that it would be absolutely wrong to breed human beings, right? that you take the handsomest male and the prettiest female and you say you must get married or at least we must get your sperm and her eggs and make a human being because you're the best. We have no trouble with that with cows and horses and dogs, right? We want to breed the best because that's all they're doing. They're just breeding. But human beings are not breeding, right? Human beings are making love, right? They're making love. And the baby that comes from that will be an act of love, not a, an act of pure sort of rational, in the worst sense, calculation that you're putting together the best and getting the best. Now, we want human life to come forth from human love, not from some sort of 
uh, genetic counseling that shows us that, that this will be the, the fastest human being or the tallest human being or have the, the most seductive blue eyes. But we want human beings to be born from human beings who love each other. So where do we get all these ideas? Where do we get all these ideas? Why do we think that, that human sex should be, and human baby making should be so very different from animal sex and animal baby making? Where did we get these ideas? What justification do we have for them? Well, one thing we have it written into our very nature, we don't have to think a lot about it. It's pretty obvious to us. But when you do think about it, you come up with reasons. One is the very fundamental reason, of course, is that we are, again, rational creatures. We order things to the good. A dog may have sex with this dog and that dog and that dog and not be thinking about it. There's no feelings hurt. There's no commitments made. But with human beings, again, there are. So you don't think, well, I had sex this afternoon with her and tomorrow with someone else and tomorrow with someone else. Well, it's a different reality. It's, you've got a human being there because human beings are, are multidimensional, unlike dogs. We have spirits, we have emotions, we have souls, all right? And these need to be taken into account in any act. You can't just deal with a body. You have to deal with the whole of the human person. Now, what's very important to see, and now I'm going to be moving somewhat into theology, again, is this notion that the human being is made in the likeness and image of God, right? The human being is made in the likeness and image of God. In a certain sense, everything is. God is the author of all of nature and all of creation. Everything has his stamp on it. But we're like God in a way that's incredible, meaning that we have both reason, again, and free will, right? We are free to order things. Again, everything else in the universe acts out of instinct, whereas we can act out of thinking and choice. It's something that we can do. And God wants us to be like him, creators, creators of what is good, okay? Acting in such a way to bring the good into the world, not just acting by instinct, but thinking, ordering, reasoning, and acting in accord, choosing in accord with what is good. Now, there's a very important other way in which we're like God. God is a trinity, okay? God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God is a community. God is relational, all right? And we're relational, right? We are relational. We are not sufficient unto ourselves, right? We're not a little universe of our own. We, and this is where John Paul II has this marvelous phrase, this is his phrase, the nuptial meaning of the body, that our bodies show very clearly that we're directed towards someone else, and we're directed towards someone else of the opposite sex, and we are not whole until two become one, right? And that two becoming one is directed towards a third, Right? It's directed towards a third. It's directed towards an offspring. So in a certain sense, the human being is kind of a trinity, or a trinity waiting to happen, a trinity waiting to happen. Male, female, baby, right? And now you have this threeness that you have in the trinity. And so that this is important to see that by our very nature, we're not just looking for our own self-satisfaction in sexual intercourse. When I eat, I'm looking for my well-being, my body. But my sexual intercourse, my sexual powers, are not directed towards myself solely. They're very much directed towards the union with another person and then another person that comes from that union, right? Which creates a community, and very important here, a community of love. The Trinity is a community of love. And so human sexuality is directed towards not just the satisfaction of my own desires, right? But it's directed towards creating a community of love. Very important. So we have, again, a natural inclination for sexual intercourse because it gives us pleasure. We also want the intimacy that comes from it and we want the babies that come from it. But what is important for us to do is to think about how to act in accord, again, with what is good. If intimacy comes from sexual intercourse, then we should be acting in such a way so that we are prepared for the intimacy that comes with this act. And if we're not prepared for it, if we don't want to be intimate with this person, if we don't want to have a bond with this person, then we shouldn't be engaging in sexual intercourse with this person. So, and you know, you think, well, gee, that's kind of fundamental. <laughs> See, that's kind of fundamental. That's what it is. But you're thinking, our society seemed to think, again, you can have these one-night stands, and they're just fine. You see, but you know, it's quite impossible to be a human being and to engage in sex without some kind of bonding going on. If you don't bond, there's something wrong. Again, if you were to hear that your parent died or your child died and you didn't feel sad, there's something wrong. 
The human response to the situation is to be sad. There's a closeness here. Sex brings with us a closeness. You want to say, why? Why does it? Dogs walk away. They seem to have no residual attachments. So what is it about the human being? First of all, you're not just two bodies uniting. You're emotions and a spirit uniting. And when you do that, when your two spirits unite, when the bodies walk away, it doesn't mean the spirits are necessarily going to walk away. There's certain commitment you make there. And of course, sexual intercourse, you are naked, you are vulnerable, right? There's two vulnerabilities coming together. You're giving of yourself. That's what John Paul II says about the nuptial meaning of the body. It's obviously meant to give to someone else. And when you're having sexual intercourse, you're giving of yourself to another person. When you walk away, can you just walk away? Can you take back entirely what you've given? Or aren't you giving in such a profound and intimate way that it's not easy to take it back? So the first thing one has to think about is that one is going to have sexual intercourse, is that one must be prepared for the emotional bonds. You can see that particularly with teenagers and parents who have any sense with their teenagers, you know, about dating and getting involved. You say, are you ready for this? All right, are you ready for this? Meaning, are you ready for the kind of emotional commitment there is, even just in dating? This girl's gonna become dependent upon you. She's gonna expect you to call. He's gonna expect you to go out with him. He's gonna expect you to be at the dance for him. Do you want those expectations? We're, we're not talking here yet about sexual intercourse. We're just talking about male-female psychic connections that there are, which bring with them a kind of a bonding, a minimal bonding, but a kind of a bonding on that level. And you have to say, am I prepared for that? If I'm not prepared for this relationship, no matter how much I would like the pleasure, no matter how much I would enjoy the interaction, if I'm not ready for a kind of a bonding, if I think it's inappropriate, if I don't really like this person enough to, to bond emotionally with the person, then I should stay out of this relationship, no matter how much pleasure I might think I can get from it. All right? Same thing with babies. Are you ready for a baby? Should you be engaging in an act that has the possibility of a baby coming from it if you're not prepared for that baby? Now, this is a fundamental natural law principle, right? That since sex brings with it babies, the rational, responsible, good human being will not have sex unless that human being is prepared for babies, unless you're prepared for bonding, unless you're prepared for babies. The conclusion to be drawn from that for most, is that you're not prepared for these things until you're married. That you're not really prepared for the kind of emotional, intimate bonding that comes with sexual intercourse unless you're married. That sexuality represents so much this total giving of yourself that that total giving can only be protected and nourished within marriage. To do that outside of marriage, you haven't given totally. You've held back. You've said, I don't want to give a lifetime commitment here. I don't want to give that. I just want to give a year, a month, a night, okay? We may be having sex outside of marriage, but we're, we're not totally giving of each other, to each other, because we have held back the kind of commitment that is naturally written into this act. It's the same thing with babies, all right? That babies require a lifetime of care. And if you're not prepared to give this child a lifetime of care, if you're not prepared to give any child, you say, I'm not ready yet, then you're not ready for sexual intercourse because sexual intercourse brings with it these goods. This is true of, again, anything in life, that one has to be responsible for whatever the consequences are, whatever the responsibilities are that come with the act. I want to think a bit about babies. I want to think about a bit about babies and sexual intercourse. Again, unlike dogs and cats that, that have offspring, have puppies and kitties, we have human beings. We have little human beings that take I think a lifetime of care, right? You can't just sort of say at 18, you're out of here, right? You have an obligation to this child for the rest of this child's life, and an obligation to provide the best possible atmosphere for this child's upbringing, which includes providing a husband or providing a, a father, providing a mother for this child. What natural law tells us is that again, there is this telos, this purpose, this goal for sexuality. Humans, we can see what happens with it. We can see that there's bonding and there's babies. And that unless you're prepared for these, you're not prepared for the act of sexual intercourse. Now again, it's much like, as I was saying, for anything else. You say, obviously, our whole digestive system is for eating. You say, there's certain food that's good for eating and it nourishes my body. There's other food that is bad for it. Well, it's the same thing here. We know, we know what sex is for. In the same way that food is for nourishing the body, 
Sex is for intimacy and babies. You'll say, well, what kind of sex, again, promotes intimacy and babies? My claim is that marriage does. Marriage is the proper relationship that will allow the intimacy that comes with marriage and the babies that come with marriage to flourish. What kinds of sexual intercourse is harmful to that? <laughs> Almost every other kind. You think about, we'll talk for a moment, I, the most immediate one to think about is sex outside of marriage, premarital sexual intercourse. What do people want with premarital sexual intercourse? They want pleasure. Good enough, sure enough. I want pleasure, I want to eat cake, I want to eat ice cream, I want to eat chocolate, but am I prepared for what comes with it? When babies are born out of wedlock, or when young people have sex out of wedlock, there's all sorts of chaotic consequences, both for themselves, for culture, and for their children. They bond when they shouldn't bond. How many times do you see it, that you see young people who have sexual intercourse with someone who is really not good for them, right? They're not well-matched. They don't share the same values. Perhaps the young man or the young woman is extremely immature, extremely selfish. But they have sexual intercourse, and they bond with this person. They may end up even marrying this person. I've seen many people in their 20s, late 20s, get married to the person they're having sex with, right? Because this is convenient, right? We've been having sex. We're close to each other. We like each other. We don't fight much. But, you know, they might be very incompatible. And about five years later, they might discover this. Now, they might stay married. Staying married is a good thing. But the problem is they're still married to someone that they're not well suited for because he got involved sexually prematurely, right? And you say that sex can be so bonding that it can make you overlook other values that you should be taking into account for whenever you're pursuing a relationship that should be lifetime. The same thing with babies. Someone may have a baby out of wedlock and not be the least bit interested in the father. Right? The father might want to be a very good father, but he isn't really the least bit interested in the woman by whom he had this child. It makes life extremely difficult. They both owe this child a good mother and a good father, but the problem is they may not care very much about each other at all because they entered into a relationship for pleasure without full awareness of what the intimacy and the babies that come with sexual intercourse and the sort of respect that they should have for each other and for the act of sex and for the consequences of sex. So natural law teaching on sexuality is that you must respect the goods of sexuality. The goods of sexuality are pleasure, intimacy, and babies. And that you should not be engaging in sexual intercourse unless you can take full responsibility for the consequences that naturally, that naturally result from the act of sexual intercourse. And you should try to find an atmosphere in which one can protect those goods. The wisdom of the ages, the wisdom of the Catholic Church, has been that the proper place to protect the goods of sexuality, intimacy, and babies is marriage. We'll continue this next time. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.